The Ice Shots Podcast, episode number 40. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Ice Shots. My name is Michael Ivaliotis, and this is the show devoted to the world of LabVIEW. With each episode, I bring you interviews, discussions, and share with you ideas on software engineering with LabVIEW. Well, thank you all again for joining me on this episode of VI Shots. I'm your host, Michael Ivaliotis. And in this episode, we're going to uh, play a recording that we did uh, for VI Shots Live, our third VI Shots Live recording. And uh, we had a few special guests on. And uh, when we'll get into that recording, you'll uh, hear me introduce the guests. But also, uh, I like to say before I get into the recording of the VI Shots Live and play that for you, uh, I want to talk to you about why I was away for a week. I know I've been, for the last few months, I've been recording uh, consistently every two weeks. And that's been my goal since last year of August, I believe, to get an episode of VI Shots out every two weeks. Of course, I have a day job. Believe it or not, yes, this is not my job. Doing podcasting is not my full-time job. Um, and I work for JKI, which is an Alliance member company. And uh, we do system development, system integration, and we develop systems for, for uh, customers using LabVIEW. Uh, but one of the uh, projects that I'm... Uh, that's close and dear to my heart is uh, the, the uh, product that JKI develops, which is VI Package Manager. And uh, I've been busy on VI Package Manager. There's a new release coming soon in a few weeks, um, VIPM 2014 in, to be in specific. And we have a, a few uh, cool new features added to VIPM, which uh, I hope that uh, will uh, be useful to quite a few people out there that are using LabVIEW. And uh, VIPM basically is a tool that uh, helps you install add-ons into LabVIEW and also helps you package uh, code that's written in LabVIEW and install it into your project environment, in your development environment, and allows you to manage your code and your reuse libraries uh, in a more powerful way. And we've been adding a few new features into VIPM, which will make that a lot easier and basically allow VIPM to expand into other areas of your development lifecycle. So that's why I've been busy, and uh, that's kind of taken a lot of my focus. But uh, I think I'll be, uh, for the next few weeks, we'll be back on track. And uh, for the next episode, actually, I have an interview with Darren Nattinger, and he did a presentation at the CLA Summit regarding some cool tools that he found, new VIs, that actually are already in LabVIEW, and he uh, he's uncovered them for us. So uh, he's going to be presenting that in the next VI Shots episode. So really excited about VI Package Manager. VIPM 2014 is just around the corner, and I will be posting actually a beta version of VIPM in the LabVIEW beta forum. So if you're uh, listening and you're on the VI and the in the LabVIEW beta forum, you'll be able to download a copy of VIPM 2014 beta and try it out. Speaking of LabVIEW beta. There is the uh, LabVIEW 2014 beta program currently ongoing. So if you're a LabVIEW fan, you use LabVIEW on a regular basis, and it's your it's an important tool for you, you'd want to be able to give feedback on the next version of LabVIEW that's coming out. Make sure it has been tested 
properly and you can help out with that. And also you can check out the new features that are built into Lavi 2014 and test those out, make sure those are working and to see what's coming down the pipe to see if those new features will help you in any way and prompt you to, to upgrade to Lavi 2014. So to join the LabVIEW 2014 beta program, go to ni.com slash beta, and that'll take you right to the beta form where you can apply to be part of the beta. Typically, it takes a few days to get accepted, but um, National Instruments needs more beta testers, so they'll gladly uh, let you join in on the beta program. So now that I got those two things out of the way I wanted to tell you guys about, let's get right into the VI Shots Live right now. I'd like to welcome, uh, first of all, uh, Jack, and thank you for uh, co-hosting VI Shots Live again this week. Yeah, you bet. Pleasure to be here as always, Mike. I uh, just wanted to say so far that uh, the VI Shots Live uh, episodes have been very popular, and Jack and I would like to thank everyone for their support. Uh, if you want to watch the previous episodes, you can go over to vishots.com slash live where you can see all the previous recordings. Currently, this show is being recorded with a live video stream via Google Hangouts. Uh, we're currently taking live questions from those watching. If you go to vishots.com slash live, you can see there's a link where you can click on and go into the Google Hangouts page where you can watch the show there and ask questions as well. Um, so right now, feel free to go ahead and start typing in questions in the Q&A window in the Google Hangouts window, yeah. and we'll do our best to answer any questions that come up. If you want to know when the next VI Shots live event is going to happen, uh, because that's the best way to watch us is live, of course, uh, so that you can be part of this awesome event and participate in the conversation. Uh, subscribe to the VI Shots mailing list. Just go over to vishots.com slash subscribe. Uh, I will send out a personalized email a few days before the show airs. Uh, of course, if you want to give us feedback uh, or maybe Best Buy gift cards or anything like that, uh, just send them to uh, feedback at vishots.com. Uh, today we have a great panel. Of course, Jack Dunaway from Wirebird Labs is here. Uh, yeah, but we, I, yep. I prefer uh, Circuit City gift cards to Best Buy or, or <laughs> Amazon, if, if you have any. iTunes, sure, whatever. Yeah, there you uh, go. We have uh, other uh, guests besides Jack. <laughs> uh, uh, our two guests actually have been on the VI Shots podcast before, uh, Fabiola de la Cueva and Justin Gores. Uh, Fabiola, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, actually, did you just come off a plane or something? Because I think you were in Europe, correct? Yeah, I actually just landed uh, yesterday, last night. Okay, so you're in this weird jet-lagged mode, I guess. Yeah, I don't know what time it is. <laughs> <laughs> so Fabiola was at the CLA Summit in uh, Geneva just last week for, um, for an awesome event. Uh, Justin Gores as well is with us uh, from JKI. He's a co-worker of mine, and he's coming us, to us all the way from Raleigh, uh, North Carolina. Jack, I mean, uh, Justin, welcome. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. And uh, so half of the panel has been to Geneva, and the other half has not. So we're a little bit, so we're a little bit jealous. Uh, maybe you can uh, give us a little bit as to what happened over there. Uh, what do you? What, what was going on at the uh, at the CLA summit, Jack? Oh wow, it was fantastic. Uh, so first of all, the thing that surprised me more than anything is just the size of this summit uh, this year. 
was almost as big as it was in America. Fab, how many was it in Geneva? It was close to 100? Yeah, 100. And and then we had the extra room that was watching us, so I think if you count those people too, it was probably 120 around. Right, and I think in America there were 118 final count mm-hmm. from the community. Yeah. Uh, so that that was one thing that was fantastic uh, and surprising even is just the size of the summit. Uh, so getting to interact with uh, all my customers over there, also uh, just getting to interact with the community over there, uh, make some new connections, hear some great presentations. Uh, it was really fantastic. And of course, you guys got to see the large uh, the Hedron Collider. How was that? That was amazing. Yeah. I, I did. I I got to go to the Atlas. There are different stations within the the loop, and I went to the one in Atlas. Um, it's not. It wasn't as as uh, open as the ones that uh, Jack and the rest of the team went to see. But just going 100 meters underground and seeing the magnitude and the size. Oh, actually, Jack and I were on the same one, but we were oh. looking at pictures <laughs> of other people. Some of the other people. Have you, did you see the pictures of the other people that went to the other to the? Uh, I think it was the what was the name of the other experiment? Anyway, they were standing in front of the tunnel where the beam goes through, and it's just the sheer size of that. We came out of that saying, you know, next time I think that I'm working on a large uh, channel application, I'm just gonna laugh at myself because it's just it's just incredible. <laughs> oh, I know, and all that for uh, 20, 20 nanograms of uh, of mass that they're accelerating. Yes. It it's insane. It was awesome. So uh, that was awesome. Uh, I mean, that's I will try, try, try to to go to to your, the European summit next year, depending on where it is, of course. Now let's let's get into our main topic. Uh, today's discussion is about uh, well, our title is kind of exciting: uh, the LabVIEW Nomad, developing and debugging LabVIEW remotely. LabVIEW Nomad kind of conjures up images of some guy in a backpack with a LabVIEW logo <laughs> on his back. Just running around fixing LabVIEW code or something. Uh, LabVIEW hobo. Right. <laughs> uh, but it was it was a cool title, and Jack and I said, "Hey, let's go with it. It's awesome." So, just to just to start off, describe uh, maybe Justin kind of some of the things that that you you do uh, remotely with customers. Yeah, you bet. Um, it's a really interesting question for me because I've been working almost exclusively remotely for, gosh, what is it? I'm looking at the calendar in the corner of my screen here. Um, Nine years now, 10 years. Um, And the world has really evolved in even just the last several years um, to the point where now we take things like Google Hangouts or or Skype or Dropbox or even instant messaging um, is is just a, a taken for granted part of the workflow now. Um, whereas, you know, even just a few years ago, stuff like that was really hard. It was stuff like that was really hard to do to just get files from one computer to another or to remotely log into a computer. You could sort of set it up if you knew how to do it, but you were building it kind of from scratch and then something would change and you'd lose the connection or whatever. And then how do you fix it? But now there are just so many tools like, you know, team viewer and join me and, and any number of things. Um, that, that make that so trivial um, that, you know, just having a good, a good system or a good sort of set of tools for managing those connections and, and getting your customers to buy into them, which is not always easy um, until they see the value of it, you know, until they literally see with their own eyes um, how much it allows you to do. Uh, is, is really key. Um, the other thing I would say is sort of the rise of virtual machines. 
um, being able to do work on multiple different projects in different VMs without needing different different physical machines, but also then being able to have virtual machines in the cloud, like your Rackspace or, or whatever machines. Um, it, it The way I feel it going is that now being remote is almost the same as being in the office. Like a lot of the, the work we do at JKI, we're actually doing remotely on other people's machines anyway. And so at that point, we're all kind of nomads. And I think that's that's something that's happened in the last few years that's really interesting. Uh, Fab, what is your take on it? Well, I've been doing this since uh, 2006. Yeah, so, um, and it, I mean, Justin is right. It, it, the amount of tools we have now, it just makes it a lot easier. But since the beginning, I've mostly worked from home. I only visited uh, my customers when they required uh, on-site help and on-site support. But for the most part, I do everything either from home or uh, if I'm on the road, uh, I, I just make sure that I pick up a hotel that has a good internet connection, which, by the way, a tip for anybody that's doing that. Um, some like extended state hotels, limit the amount of bandwidth that you get so what i do is they normally have a little thing next to the the, the phone that has the technical support uh, contact number so i call them directly i don't call the reception desk i call the technical support directly and i basically say you know i i, I work uh, i'm going to be working from here i'm going to be needing extra bandwidth and i've i've had it I think only once they actually charged me extra, but for the rest of the time they were like, okay, um, I will increase your bandwidth. So I was able to take, uh, you know, to do calls and do teaching from from a hotel room, which was good. Um, so definitely is making it easier. Uh, when I started, it was hard to to find tools that large companies would not block via the. Um, their firewall um so yeah I, I was always looking for what was the latest thing that they hadn't cut yet so i could uh, connect remotely nowadays i think most it departments realize that that's an, uh, something that's needed and i have now situations where the customer themselves they say look uh, my it department uses webex uh, we're going to be sending you an invite and you know basically they host the uh, the connection to their computer um but yeah, it's, it's it's definitely very exciting and a lot of opportunities nowadays to, to communicate and work remotely. So that tip, uh, just calling up technical support and saying, hey, I need internet, do you think that would work at the Hilton uh, at, at NI Week <laughs> rather uh, than pay $12 a day? Well, if you're no, fast. No no. <laughs> no, no, no. So this is when you already have the internet included in your room. Like, uh, you know, right. if you're sending like a residence in or, um, or the embassy suites, any of those that already have or you're already paying for the Internet. But even when you're already paying for it, they limit your bandwidth. And it is, you know, they don't want you to be is watching videos, I guess, and streaming and stuff because they are supporting the entire building. Um, but uh, but I've more than once I've called and I've gotten my bandwidth uh, popped up. Yeah, that's a fantastic tip. I'm going to have to start using that one. <laughs> I mean, I can't make the difference between Skype not working and then Skype starting to work. Now, in Europe, it's a lot harder. Europe doesn't, um, uh, they, they're not as advanced on the support for Wi-Fi as they are in the U.S., so they would definitely charge you extra. And uh, and Skype is just almost impossible to use. But, uh, but in the U.S., every place I've been, that has worked out well. 
So let's let's get into. And both of you mentioned a few tools uh, offhandedly there. So let's get into some of the tools that you that you guys use or that we that we all use. Uh, so uh, there's there's two types of collaboration. I think one is well is collaborating with other people and having meetings and uh, going through project work uh, and whatnot. And then there's the actual uh, supporting your test system kind of tools where you're 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 remotely debugging or supporting. So uh, let's talk a little bit first about the um, the collaboration tools that that some of you use. Uh, maybe Jack, you want to start? Yeah, sure. So actually, the thing that we're using right now, Google Hangouts, this has just become uh, one of my more favorite tools. Uh, simply because when you're talking about working remotely, uh, you're talking about interfacing with two different types of things. One is a person on the other end, and then one is the machine on the other end. And when you're talking to a person, you want to have things like uh, like video conferencing is, is usually nice. Having audio, of course, is nice. Uh, having chat is also very handy because you're able to paste URLs and paste information into the window. Uh, so having one service provider that provides all of these things uh, is fantastic. Skype is another good one for that. Um, let's see, you, you guys can probably name some more. But one of the other cool things that it has in addition to this is screen sharing, uh, which Skype also has. Uh, so it, it's kind of a toss up between Google Hangouts and Skype. I don't know. What do you guys think? I know uh, Justin, Fab, you guys are longtime Skype users and just now getting into uh, Google Hangouts yourselves and other things like join me and uh, log me in and things like that. So I've been using a combination uh, of Skype and join me. I know join me has uh, audio too, but it was just one of those things where in the beginning it was hard to make it work. So we do a Skype, we do the audio, and then join me, we do for a screen sharing. Um, I have customers that have that are using virtual machines too, or use a Mac, and then are rolling, you know, running Windows in parallels. So we do things like using join me uh, on the. Um, on the host machine or on the guest machine and then using Skype on the other machine. So that way, if we get disconnected from one or the other or we need to reboot the virtual machine, we're still connected. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is a combination of, uh, of all those. But uh, Skype has been working really well. Doesn't work so well if you have more than one person on the on the line. If you need to do a conference, uh, definitely Google Hangouts or um or like I said, my customer already has a system like WebEx or uh, what's the other one, the link, the Microsoft link, then they send me an invite and we do it that way. Um, but for one one, Skype has been working really well. Yeah, that's a good point. Just to build on something Fabiola was saying, um, I, I've... I know that a lot of these tools like Google Hangouts are really combining screen sharing with video chat, with text chat, with with all this other stuff. And I still, and Jack, you rightly observed that, you know, we're getting to be kind of a dinosaur here. Having, having done this for so long, like I, I have a lot of personal inertia, right? Like I I have Skype running, like the, the, the amount of time that I've had, that I've owned my current laptop, I've probably had Skype running literally 99.9% of the time, right? Skype is my window, my connection to the world outside my office here in, in my house or my connection back to wherever wherever my other people are if I'm on site or whatever um, and so for me Skype is like the office 
kinda. And because of that, I tend to sort of mentally separate that from screen sharing. And so I'll have a bunch of VMs up, and rather than running Skype or running a Hangout in one of those VMs, if I have to screen share, what I'll do is I'll hop on Skype and you know get with with Javier or Michael or whoever else at JKI that I'm dealing with, and and use that for voice and 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 video. But then I'll run join me inside the VM. And that way, it sort of sandboxes the screen sharing into the VM so that mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about, you know, multiple VMs or what am I showing or, or whatever. That seems to work pretty well for me um, to sort of divide the tools that way. Um, but that having been said, I know that Google Hangouts is ascendant here, and I've been using it more and more just because I have more friends who like to use it. And, and you know, and I, I like this too, so... Yeah, that you bring up a good point in which tool you use is also sensitive to the other person on the other end, what they're comfortable with. If you're uh, working with a coworker, you know, who's familiar with the entire stack, uh, then you can you can do these more sophisticated things like this. However, one thing that I found out, like when I'm doing uh, sales demos or initial calls uh, to people who aren't necessarily comfortable with this type of a remote communication style. Uh, join me is perfect because it's just a simple URL saying, hey, you can even call in with your telephone and you don't need to <laughs> you don't need to worry about things like uh, video cameras uh, because that in and of itself can be a huge turnoff saying, hey, I want to look at you across the Internet. Uh, that's that's kind of a big thing to ask a lot of people. Uh, so yeah, just understanding uh, the person on the other side is is also going to dictate which one of these uh, tools you're you're going to want to use. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree with that. Is the kind of the the person you're collaborating with uh, also will dictate that. Uh, for example, at JKI, uh, we use a lot of go to go to meeting um, mm -hmm. because it's very easy to um, invite people and have them join. Kind of the, the, the join-in process is, is the easy process, Whether uh, whereas Skype is you have to install Skype, we have to be friends, and mm -hmm. then, you know, there's a there's a, a process that you have to go through, whereas with GoToMeeting, you send them an invite, you schedule a meeting, um, it pops up on your calendar and all that stuff, and then you just join in. And plus the, uh, the screen sharing, uh, document sharing, and that type of thing is a lot better. Google Hangouts is kind of getting really good at the screen sharing part of it. I know Skype um, has dropped support for screen sharing in kind of the free version. Um, now you have to pay for that. Or, or the quality is pretty bad in the free version, yeah. I guess. As I mean, to that, it is still there, it, 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 but you cannot, do, you cannot do share video and share screens at the same time. The main reason I don't use share screens with Skype is that you cannot give control to the other person. So that and and normally what happens is if I'm on a call with uh, with a customer where we're is, is doing a screen share is because they want me to control their environment and you know do things there. So then we cannot really use Skype at that point because I won't be able to control their computer. Exactly, and that's where Join Me or um, or what is it Hangouts Hangouts allow mm -hmm. that also. Yeah. Let's get into uh, some of the kind of things that might. Uh, affect you know some people using LabVIEW and troubleshooting systems is remote support right mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of these tools that we mentioned do help a little bit with with remote support but they're mostly for collaborating and exchanging uh, managing projects and you know exchanging ideas with others um, when it comes to actually supporting a system that's broken <laughs> in the field 
it becomes a bit challenging when you know you're not immediately able to just hop on a plane and go to the customer site. So uh, give us uh, some idea, kind of Justin, as to some of the the tools that you use or some of the techniques you use to support remote systems. Sure. There's basically one thing that I tend to use uh, for remote system support and and certainly there are other options but this is the one that i've fallen into and stuck with and it's a product called team viewer um and it's essentially kind of like join me or kind of like screen sharing and remote control all that stuff is sort of built on the same bottom level stack right but what team viewer lets you do is it lets you install on um on a windows machine and i think they i don't know if they have it for other platforms but it works on, it works on um, mac too yeah they certainly well they certainly have oh that's right of course, that works on Mac. I wouldn't I, know that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just don't have any clients that are on Macs. Um, so anyway, but what it lets you do is it lets you actually set up a, a TeamViewer account for yourself and then register remote computers under that account so that I can sit down at any computer that has TeamViewer on it and log into, and you can even do this on their website, log into your TeamViewer account and get a list of all the computers that are that are registered to you and then just double click on them and open a remote session to them. So I know that I can be anywhere and if I need to, even if I don't have my computer with me that has TeamViewer installed, I can sit down at, at Google Chrome or Firefox or whatever, go to their website and actually have you know one or two click access provided I know my username and password um, for the TeamViewer account uh, and have access to any number of remote computers. Um, and you know it works. It has good hooks into Windows, so it'll sort of support like the Windows login screen and runs as a service and all that. And so I've had um, a lot of success with that. And I just have sort of this uh, this. Uh, army of computers out there at various customer sites that I can kind of pop into whenever I need to. And that, that works for me and it works for them. And, and they can just call me up and say, Hey, such and such doesn't work. And I say, Oh, I'll check it out. And I just hop on and do it. So team viewer is what I use for that. That's by far my favorite. There may be others. So I have a challenge question for you, uh, Justin, or maybe Fab, you could jump in on this one. And that is, uh, let's say this remote computer has a piece of hardware attached to it. And that hardware has a physical reset button on it. You know that you're like, oh, I need to push this button. How do you, how do you handle that? You you call the guy who can reach the button. <laughs> that, I mean that that actually is a really really interesting and relevant point because we run into that a lot uh, with one of with one of my customers in particular. They have a a, a industrial network that they use that occasionally just falls over and it's probably my software's fault but but let's leave that aside the point is the network falls over and um so you know once a week or so we have to call the guy and be like hey you know go into the lab and hit the button and they go do that um now in that case what we have is a really great relationship with the technician on the other end and he just knows he's one of these guys that has his cell phone on 24 hours a day and he'll just drop what he's doing and go out and do it so i guess my advice there is be friends with the technician (laughs) be be nice to the technicians um that's a really that's a really good question um you know there are some there are instances where you need physical access to the hardware and that that can be tough yeah i was gonna say yeah i mean i've had situations like that i remember one time i was uh installing one system it was uh, i think compact field point or field point like it was an old system and uh and i was getting ready to do the deployment and they had given me access to the computer and everything and one night was once i was getting ready to do the deployment uh, it, it was erroring on me and i finally realized that oh let me do the monitoring uh, of all the different switches and i found that the switch that says not you know that blocks so you cannot 
put new executables was set. So in that case, there was no option except calling the customer and say, would you please go? And he was actually an hour or so away from the plant. So he, in the, he had to go back and, and, and sure enough, that switch was not in the right position. Um, on the situations where you actually have to reboot hardware, uh, the compact rear systems do not really have uh, a way of rebooting, like, rebooting the, the cycling the power like you can reboot the compact rear but you cannot really cycle the power um and i had uh, a system with a customer where we actually ended up doing some weird combination of relays hmm. uh, that we would actually fire from uh, a different system that would cycle the power on the compact reel. Uh, and for the most part, we were able to do that remotely. And every now and then, well, you still have to have someone go on site and, and, uh, and check and just turn the, the switch. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, there's not, not something that just comes on the hardware that says, okay, I'm going to be able to cycle it, which some industrial hardware do, but not, unfortunately, not compact reel. So uh, yeah, I mean, for for myself, uh, I would I would be kind of um, on Justin's page is uh, have very good relationships with the people that are running your equipment, and mm. most of the time you do because if you've started from the ground up and you've kind of built the system for them, you've had to interact with all the people that are using the system, um, so they kind of know you by first name, but never give them your personal uh, <laughs> Skype. Don't give them your Skype handle, otherwise they'll be skyping you all the time. Um, you don't want that, but, uh, make sure you have, you know, their phone numbers, their, uh, you know, you can text them or whatever. And, and, and uh, a lot of these companies work, uh, 24 hours, they have multiple shifts. Um, the, the bad part is when the system goes down in the middle of the night. Um, and then, then you have to support that. So that's, that's a bit of a bit tricky there. Uh, but yeah, um, having people help you on the other end. There was a time where, um, with one of our customers, we were investigating the idea of having a camera actually on the test fixture so we can see what's connected and what's going on. However, that got shot down because of privacy issues. Um, people thought that you know we were going to be spying on them and all that stuff. So that never went through. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that would be pretty awesome actually to have a camera and just to see what's, what's going on with the system. I see there are some items in the, in the Hangout QA here. Do we want to hit a few of those? Yeah, uh, so there's uh, one that's, uh, that's from Mike Sachs and, uh, and says, ever had issues with corporate IT policies making remote connection more difficult or issues with antivirus conflicts? So <laughs> corporate IT policies. I, I have a little experience with that just recently because I've been working with a, a medical, uh, a fairly large medical company. Um, and basically... I'm going to give a pretty unsatisfying answer to that, um, and I'll say that that a lot of the modern tools like JoinMe and TeamViewer and all that are actually set up so that they tunnel through HTTPS, um, which is almost universally sort of allowed. Um, so in general, picking the right, picking a tool that doesn't raise alarms with IT is is sort of the, the easiest way around that. If you're in an environment where even that's locked down, um, then what I have done, so, actually, what I typically do is I just try to use customer machines instead of my own machine, and and sort of try to work through the channels I can, um, you know, to make the best of it. I, you know, I use um, 
like for moving source code around, I use distributed version control, you know, like like Kiln or Mercurial or whatever. So I can actually carry my repository on a USB stick and commit back and forth between my machine and the customer machine, I, you know, but that sort of requires me to be on site in order to do it. Um, you know, it's a lot of the modern tools deal pretty well with corporate firewalls, but where they don't, um, it's it's still pretty tough. So the other uh, side of that is even though the firewall can get you can get through the firewall, sometimes their policy doesn't allow a certain software to be installed at all. Like the we'll just like I have a customer that doesn't want TeamViewer, won't even actually allow TeamViewer to be installed on their system at all. Um, and without TeamViewer, I'm kind of lost. <laughs> without TeamViewer, without some remote control software, I'm completely lost, and we end up having to. Uh, I mean, it costs more to support this customer, honestly. It just costs more, and I think that has to be explained uh, or uh, you know, factored in because you have to do multiple builds. You have to build, send it out, test it. Oh, didn't work. Okay, let's try this other thing. And then you have to deal with the customer giving you feedback as to what happened on the system and giving you screenshots and that type of thing, which, again, a lot gets lost in translation unless you can see it yourself. Uh, a lot of the times, it doesn't it doesn't help you to debug a system, so it is challenging. Um, um, in yeah. that situation, I found that that join me. It's it's better just because it's easier just to say you know go to this URL, and even though it downloads a small program, it's smaller than TeamViewer. TeamViewer kind of it's kind of heavy, um, so that has helped. Now that said, there are sometimes that the the system where you're actually going to be installing things is not on the network, right? So the, the 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 final system. So even if you wanted to, you you can't. So what we what I've done with that with with a customer man right now that has that problem is we use source code control. Uh, we we collaborate and work directly on his development computer, and then when we're ready to try, we do an export of the of the source or a deployment of the executable, depending where we are on the deployment, uh, on the testing part. And then he goes and installs it on the computer. And then here comes the kicker. He turns his laptop with his camera facing to the computer. And then, and then we just, you know, run it and make sure it works. Um, but, but that's, I mean, the, the, sometimes you have to do that because there's, there's no way to connect to that computer. And on the IT question, uh, Steve Watts did an awesome presentation at, at, at the CLA Summit last week. And he had the IT guy, uh, what was it, a skeleton with the World Wide Web on his hand saying, this is my access to the World Wide Web and I won't give it to you. Um, and we also had a good, a good presentation on security. And there are reasons why sometimes the IT departments are kind of like more um, strict than others. My suggestion to my customers is always, when was the last time you took your IT guy for lunch or, you know, had a conversation with them? I mean, have a good relationship with them and try to understand what are the concerns because they might have valid concerns. And then we can, if we understand what are the concerns, we can work as a team and try to explain, okay, we can address it this way, or what tool do you recommend? I mean, some of the tools that I've used, like Log Me In, was uh, was recommended by one IT department I work with. Um, Copilot was another one that I discovered later. So it's just it's just a matter of also just talking to their IT department and understanding their concerns. Yeah, it, e echo all these, and we've got another comment uh, in the chat window from Chris Ralph. He says, sometimes if you can't get the remote access you need, uh, you basically just have to factor in the cost uh, or maybe not yeah. even take the job. 
and it, as long as uh, as long as that cost is amenable to the customer and it's amenable to you personally, then it's perhaps something you can take on. Uh, so I, what I found is that with working uh, with people like this, it's not necessarily uh, just the uh, just the cost itself that uh, can take a toll, but it's the uh, just e- even the personal like oh man, you know I'm not working very quickly at all. Uh, like who who were you saying earlier, Justin? You you would have to make builds and then ship it to the customer and test if it worked. Or was that was that you that said was that or me. Fab said that? I said. That. Oh, Michael. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> We've all been there though. Yeah, it, exactly. We all have. Uh, it, we're there just as long as you can. Uh, as long as you can fight yourself, uh, you know, to be able to work within this framework. Uh, that 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 tends to be one of my bigger enemies, not necessarily the cost itself. So. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, Chris I just also wanted, pointed I just, out. Yeah, sorry, I, I'll just say it quick. Um, another thing that Chris Ralph pointed out that we actually should mention is that TeamViewer is is actually rather expensive. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, the license is is uh, not free for professional use. Um, it's it's okay to use it for personal stuff, but if you use it for business, they want you to pay. So, yeah, Christopher Ralph is also in the chat, and uh, he's still in Europe somewhere in some hotel. He's 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 a he's a the LabVIEW nomad. Um, he's he's wandering around <laughs> Europe right now. Uh, we also have uh, an interesting tip from Steve Watts uh, in regards to collaboration, uh, code collaboration. He says, "Top tip: We number and label our structures to help guide customers to the right area on the block diagram. Comes in very handy when describing block diagrams over the phone. So that's kind of cool. You could probably also do this in LabVIEW 2013 with bookmarks." Yeah, I was going to say that we use bookmarks. Great idea. Great, great tools for uh, within LabVIEW to navigate the code. Um, Speaking of kind of tools within LabVIEW, are there any tools in LabVIEW that we could use to do remote support? Anyone? So I've used the stop execution tools toolkit uh, because you can connect into a remote computer and actually do troubleshooting. If it's an executable, it has to have uh, diagrams enabled. If it's uh, just running on the environment, you can use it. Now you have to be on the same subnet. So you have to get into the firewall uh, of that customer in order to be able to do this. Um, so again, sometimes you know you actually have someone on the other end working making sure that their computer is connected to the computer that you want to troubleshoot and then you connect to, to that person's computer. Um, if you are in, in on-site, you can use it as long as you're on the same subnet. You can use desktop execution tools to get to do some uh, troubleshooting. Uh, I don't have a tip for uh, kind of tools, but what I do uh, do, and I think, I think Justin, you do that as well, is uh, I include... Uh, special debugging code in, in my software, in my application, that, uh, for example, error logging. Uh, at JKI, we have a reusable library VI that we just drop in at various places in the diagram, and it basically logs errors to disk in a text file and timestamps them and that sort of thing. And a lot of the times, um, so it, this this uh, VI, this code has two modes. One when it's in the development environment in source, it actually pops up a dialogue with the error message and the developer like myself can actually see what's going on. But when it's built into an executable, it actually uh, suppresses all those dialogues and just logs all the information to disk. And then what we ask the customer to do is just uh, send that error log or I can log in and download it myself. 
and uh, it it helps me trace through the program as to where the problem was versus having the customer des describe the dialog box that comes up and all that stuff, which is which is very difficult. Um, I know Justin in the past you've done things like logging like trace like logging actually what screens are open and things like that. Yeah. Um... Uh, there are a lot of different ways to do it. I see that, again, Chris Ralph, I feel like he's our, our ghost in the shell here, um, mentioned uh, something in the chat about desktop execution trace toolkit and and remote panels. Um, I think there are a lot of different ways to do this. And I think I, this is one of those things that after you've been around you know, 15 years or so, you, you pick up some tricks um, about sort of an intuition about what's important to log and when to log and and how to, how to write sort of a lightweight logger that you know, that you can reuse. Um, on one hand, you know, you can never log too much, but on the other hand, you actually can log too much. And, <laughs> and um, that's sort yeah. of a, you know, I, I don't have a real great, a real great answer for well, that. Well, actually, that's interesting because that tool, when I first created it many, many years ago, uh, had a bug in it where it's, uh, <laughs> well, not really a bug, it's just uh, an unanticipated feature well, it, it, will, it would actually fill up your hard drive until you're, there's no more room on your hard drive. I, I was going to say the big, the big top team, uh, you know, uh, tip on that is if you're going to be doing automatic error logging, you have to limit the size of your files. Um, if you want to keep a couple of more files, you have to have some sort of archiving, uh, you know, frequently. So you have zip files of all those error files instead of uh, just having this file that keeps growing and growing and growing because, yeah, no more hard drive. The application no longer works. So well, definitely, definitely you can log too much. Yeah, and that was actually a support issue once because the customer called and said, my system is not working. And is really, really slow. It's really, really slow. And it's <laughs> it won't do anything. And kind of error, Windows error messages kept popping up and like, what the hell's going on? So I log in and it turns out the error logger had filled up the hard drive and they literally couldn't use the computer anymore because it was just dead um so and also don't don't put your error logger in a in a, in a loop <laughs> yes and the other thing on the error logger too is you sometimes you want to filter and that of course gets into more uh fancy stuff because uh one time one of the reasons you end up getting uh running out of hardware uh, hard drive is that maybe you're having the same error every two minutes so uh, I've, um, I've, uh, I've, I, one of my customers, what they did is they actually had more of a filter uh, type. So instead of time stopping, they would actually just go and have error such and such has occurred this many times. And then you, they would just have an account. Um, because at that point, they already knew this was an old system, had been running for several years. They already had the error logger. They have decided that the chronological was not as important as how many times the error had occurred, when it had occurred. So that's the, 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 that's the only thing they, they, they kept. And that made their error logging a lot more concise. So that's another tip. But just limiting the size of the file, I think, is important. Um, Chris Rev was mentioning the desktop execution tech toolkit plus remote panels. There's also another combination you can do, which is uh, operate remotely. Um, not a lot of people know this, but if you go to LabVIEW to the operate uh, menu, you can select to debug a shared library, or you can do operate an application. So you can also connect remotely to an executable that has uh, the debugging enabled and one time this i don't do that too much because i, I it's, it's one of those things where you say it's a really cool tool that you can use but if you're using it 
you're in big trouble. <laughs> but you can have like even three computers. The computer that's running the application, then one computer connected with desktop execution to a toolkit, and a third computer operating remotely. And that way, you know, if the computer crashes, the computer that is actually running the application, you're able to see what was the last message that you got, what was the last update on the front panel. And you also can see what was the last message you got on the desktop execution trace toolkit. So it's, I've used this combination of crazy tools with, uh, with an application that was crashing every 24, 20, I think it was, yeah, about 27 hours. And the customer swore that the only thing that had changed was my installer with the Labio application. And we couldn't figure out what was going on. And by removing the observers and putting in different uh, computers, we were able to determine that the problem was on something else the customer had installed that he had forgotten that was increasing the handles every time. And then uh, the computer was actually crashing before Labio crash. So it was, it was, it was, it was useful in determining the, who, who, what happened first. Uh, a question from uh, Casey May. Um, it says regarding increased costs supporting clients where there are IT issues. If you do take that on, do you factor into the costs internally, privately only, or is that something you explicitly show and bill the customer? I I have an opinion on that. Um, this actually reminds me of, of discussions that I've had with Fabiola a lot. Um, when Fabiola talks about like unit the importance of unit testing and how you you could say to the customer, look, here's the part of your project where we're going to do unit testing, and the customer says, well, I don't I don't want that because that costs extra, right? And basically, as consultants in that in that situation, it's our job to say to the customer, well, okay, you can choose what you want, but understand that by not paying this much now, it's going to cost you. I'm going out of frame here. It's going to cost you this much later, right? And those are um, those are sort of uncomfortable conversations that that as consultants, as professionals or trusted experts, we need to acquire the skill of of being good at having those conversations. I think this is a very similar situation. Um, it needs to be okay. I think it is okay to say to the customer, "Look, you know." <laughs> Okay, this is this is the draft version. Look, your IT policies are crap, and mm -hmm. and it's costing you money and us time. And so here, you know, here is what we would like to do with the tools we like to use, or whatever tools that you know reasonably should fit in your policies. But because your policies were written in 1995, this is how much it's actually costing you. And and that's a totally reasonable conversation to have. Some co some companies, big, you know big like regulated medical industry companies or whatever um, or defense companies they may have very very good rationales for what they for what they need to do and the money to back up that rationale in which case you can show you should be able to show them the number and and they'll say yeah i know it, it's no good but here's your money and then you can decide whether you want to live in that world or reject the project um but if but if we don't have that conversation then i think it's then we have no one to blame for ourselves no no one to blame but ourselves um when the world doesn't change and, and if we want to drive it forward i think we have to get good at having those conversations and showing those costs to the customer because we owe it to them and this has to be done at the beginning right you don't you, of course you don't wait until you start the project these are the type of questions that i ask it's like are you using source code control um what are the 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 rules at your working environment for remote collaboration and all of those things are getting into consideration when we get started also i found with some of the large companies sometimes they just say oh we cannot do you cannot log in remotely they have never let us 
And then I start kind of like digging, scratching more, and I ask, when was the last time you asked? Right? And it turns out it's more one of those where it's, well, you know, this is how we've done it. And once you start asking, it turns out that the last time they asked was 10 years ago. And they just have figured out that there's no way to log in or five years ago. And I had that with a large company. And finally, I was like, let's just call your IT department and see what options they have. And it turned out that they had been using WebEx for the last three years. And that as long as he gave me access to the computer, I could just connect. And, you know, it took, I mean, it, it, it was it was kind of change of guard. The old customer, the old person that was in charge, and never even wanted to talk to IT. New person comes in, he was willing to talk to IT, and within two days we had uh, WebEx and remote access going. So it is, again, it's part of just discussing at the beginning, and I, I think you definitely need to be transparent. There are some tools that I have to pay, like I pay for Join Me, and I pay for, for certain tools for my use, but if those tools do not work with the customer, then we discuss it at the beginning and just make a suggestion as a consultant. Here are the options. Go ahead and buy the one you want. Right. And even dividing this question into two separate questions, uh, do you factor your cost internally privately? I think the answer to that should always be no. You should always show uh, the cost you know, as line items. Uh, mm -hmm. But then the second part of the question is, do you bill the customer? And then that's the part where the negotiation comes in on how much you charge for this additional overhead. Uh, because if nothing else, that gives you one more point of negotiation so that you don't have to start negotiating on things like your hourly rate. Well, one thing I would, I would like to say on that is, uh, what's the alternative? I mean, the alternative is, uh, you know, going on site. I mean going on site and then that's that's a larger cost as well to the to the customer. I mean if you're going on site and traveling and having to do that on a regular basis, those costs obviously are passed on to the to the customer. So I think it's in the customer's best interest to support remote access and remote debugging tools and things like of that nature. Absolutely. And uh, one thing that I'm finding is it's good to have a good balance of both of these. In other words, don't necessarily try to uh, do every single thing remotely because it can be more difficult to demonstrate value of your system. It can be more difficult to do further business development or new opportunities uh, that you would be able to develop further when you are on site. Uh, being able to have that physical access, you know, to the facility and to the people you're actually working with from time to time, it, it is nice to go ahead and uh, pay that overhead because it pays back more than uh, more than you you pay to do that. So we're uh, we're getting close to the end uh, end of the show. Just I'd like to go just round robin fashion between everyone and just give me your maybe one or two top uh, most important things that you need to have in place to be able to do successful uh, remote live development support collaboration that type of thing. So we'll start with maybe with uh, with Justin. Wow. Um, <laughs> most important things for remote collaboration. Uh, if you were to pick one. <laughs> if I were to pick one, the one thing that I need to do remote collaboration is Google Hangouts. I don't know. I think it's the communication channel and it's the, it's the control channel. Like I use TeamViewer, but JoinMe is fine. Um, there are lots of others. Man, that's where the world has really changed in the last, you know, five or six years. We're living in sort of the Star Trek era where we can actually remember 24, the show 24, like 14 years ago now, right? And Jack Bauer was always like, 
was always like, Chloe, send it to my screen, right? And then he'd get it on his on his Palm Pilot. They had magic. Like, she could send him 3D models of the terrorist safe house on his Palm Pilot. Like, that was fake then. But it's actually kind of real now. And, um, and, and having those tools in place and being fluent in those tools and being able to communicate communicate to the customer the trade-offs of using different you know different approaches and different of those tools I think is is the real difference between success um, and failure remotely because um, without that you can really get bogged down and and get in very slow loops of you know sneaker netting things back and forth and screenshots and and stuff like that so to me the the thing the, the, the number one thing is to have a good, a good internet connection. Uh, if you if you don't have that, then then you can have all these tools and you're not going to be able to make it work. So uh, have a good uh, you know a good computer with a good uh, uh, network card and be in a location that has good internet internet connection. I've been in Starbucks where I can actually do some remote work, and I've been in Starbucks that. There's just no way you cannot even start a you cannot even do chat. So you definitely need to have a good internet connection, and that's where, like I was saying, if you're going to be traveling, you look at a hotel that has uh, Wi-Fi included and it's more geared towards business people, then you use that. Uh, I've been in situations where I am traveling and I don't have even Labio on the you know to access, but if I can find a good um, connection i can just i get a com computer i had that once that we were on a trip and a customer called me and i didn't have my laptop and a friend of mine had his uh, laptop and i just connect remotely to my computer at home via his laptop check what i needed to check send the files to the customer and i was uh good so uh, just be able to 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 have a good a good connection all the tools and a place and a back backup plan in case you don't have that working uh, jack yeah, uh, totally, uh, totally agree with what uh, Fab and Justin said, especially Fab. I recently found a problem with my appliance, right? Because this hardware and the internet con connection, it's just an appliance that we want to work. Mm -hmm. I recently found a problem that has been causing my microphone to mute itself and Fabiola you're probably grinning when I say this because it <laughs> happens to you all the time especially you <laughs> it was not my internet connection it is a bad stick of memory and uh, it would only manifest itself when I had lots of virtual machines going and it just so happened that Fabiola is one of the, these people who typically when I'm talking to her I've got lots of machines going so <laughs> our conversations are always uh, terrible but anyway yeah the hard <laughs> The hardware is very, very important uh, just to get that right and make sure that it's working correctly. And uh, fingers crossed, we're actually going to make it through our first show, Michael, where our hardware hasn't even failed on, on this uh, yeah, Shots <laughs> oh, episode. Oh, don't jinx it. But, yeah, don't jinx it. No, but uh, hardware aside, uh, very, very seriously, one thing that I'm still trying to dial in, this one thing that I need, is this right um, empathy and understanding and mindset of how to connect with the other person on the other end because we're still not in a culture to where it's just a given that, hey, you can fire up a conversation and uh, talk, you know, see each other, talk to each other live, uh, and even share each other's screens live. 
So it's uh, it's it's just this understanding of of trying to dial in your workflow with working with other people. How do we make this work? Uh, because because we're two humans trying trying to make it work. Uh, so yeah, that's that's something that I'm excited that as time progresses further, uh, it gets easier and easier to to interact with other people. Uh, but I think that's one of the most important uh, just traits to have is is this uh, understanding that the people on the other end are typically not going to be as comfortable as you if you do this uh, day in, day out with, with dozens of people. I don't have an answer to this question, even though I came up with it. <laughs> uh, but that's my job is to ask the questions, not answer them. So... What uh, I agree with Fab, uh, internet connection, number one, I'm going to say three things, okay? Uh, so number two would be to have a laptop or a mobile computing device uh, that's very powerful and you can take with you. Don't get a desktop, obviously, and, and don't go to the extreme and get like a tablet. Obviously, you can't do that either. So uh, having a good laptop that you can take with you, because one, one thing we didn't talk about is um, going outside of your mobile office is, you know, going, like Fab said, she goes to Starbucks, uh, going on site or going to different places, you need a good mobile computing platform. And uh, so get a good laptop. And um, the third, I, I, I would say it was kind of like on, on Jack's uh, sentiment is uh, finding and making sure that you're on the same level as your customers as far as the collaboration side is to make sure that you express to them and show them all these cool and awesome tools um, and the ways that you're doing business so that not only you're working with them, but you're also educating a larger population out there about what all these, how to take advantage of the internet. The internet is not just YouTube and cat videos. It's all these cool tools that you can use to make your life easier and make our jobs better, right? Uh, it's... Uh, um, there's there's that that we have to kind of message out there, and I think uh, we're doing that right now with Google Hangouts and VI Shots Live. And Michael, you actually jog my memory. Uh, we have a very uh, a very concrete tip we can give you on the VI Shots Live website, and that is if you go to uh, your favorite search engine and type VI Shots pre-show checklist. Uh, that's going to give you just examples on how to set up your physical environment to be able to connect with people like this. Uh, because one of these other soft skills that you need to have to be able to connect re remotely is simple uh, self-awareness. Like, I, I can't tell you how many people I, I try to talk to online and they're like, hey, you know, hello, can you see me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just not, not even aware of their or environment that you're... Oh yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> or, or the uh, the creepy Blair Witch project, like no no light except for the ambient light, you know, of the screen itself. Uh, but no, just just simply being able to make yourself uh, presentable and uh, y y you know, like like somebody you you would want to talk to over the internet. Uh, that that's helpful also. So yeah, if you want to find a list of tips uh, that will help you connecting remotely with people over video conference, especially. Uh, just go Google VI Shots Live pre-show checklist. And I think maybe even just VI Shots checklist would probably get or, you there. Yeah, and the URL is vishots.com slash checklist. And that will get there you, you right there. Well, uh, this was fun as always. Uh, I'm so sad when this when the, these shows end. I, <laughs> I, I, get, I have to get off my uh, talking to my some of my best friends here. 
Um, so uh, this is it. That's the end of the show. I'd like to thank uh, Jack Dunaway from Wirebird Labs for co-hosting and managing some of the behind-the-scenes production of the show. Thank you, Jack. You betcha. Always a pleasure. Of course, I'd also like to thank our guest today, Fabiola de la Cueva. I love saying Fabiola de la Cueva. It's just oh, it's an awesome, awesome name. <laughs> uh, from Delacour Consulting, and uh, she's an independent consultant. And uh, uh, I believe it's Delacour.com. Is that correct, Fab? Yes. Yeah. Um, and Justin Gores, uh, my trusted colleague and friend from uh, JKI <laughs> and uh, from Raleigh, North Carolina. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure. And uh, thank you. Thanks for watching. Uh, please send comments and feedback to feedback at vishots.com. Uh, if you want to connect to future episodes and view the archives of the show, go to vishots.com slash live. Uh, the best way to get notified of upcoming live shows is uh, through our email list at vishots.com slash subscribe. Uh, this week, we were kind of late in sending out a notification because uh, uh, Jack and uh, Fab were, were traveling. And having fun in Europe while we were here working. Uh, so we were. were we late. did some work too. We oh, did, did some work too. Yeah. Okay. Lifting, <laughs> lifting up wine glasses to your mouth. Yes. Uh, that's that's work. Uh, I gotta say, I, I I just shut off my Facebook stream because I was getting photos from Fab and Chris and everyone from Europe, and it, it was really disgusting. Come on, guys. <laughs> You know, you know what? I actually did the same thing. I haven't been on Facebook this week because all I see is CLA Summit Europe people living it up, man. So thanks, guys. Hope you had fun. It was horrible. Hashtag, was, I wish you were here, sucker. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What a great, what a great experience. Michael, let's go next year. Yes, we have to. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, guys. And uh, that's it. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. And thank you for listening to this episode of BI Shots. If you want to give comments on this episode, go to bishots.com slash 40, and that'll give you links uh, to the content mentioned in this episode and also let you leave feedback on this show. And I read all feedback, and I try to respond to all feedback as well. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Fab, I want to say that uh, you're, <laughs> I didn't want to say anything during the show because I didn't want to screw anything up, but I think you're actually, your headset wasn't actually working. I think you were talking through your computer mic. You think so? I, th I think so. Tap the, tap the microphone. Yeah, actually, yeah, it did. It changed on me. Yeah, so that's okay. I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to jinx it. Switch it back. Switch it back. Is this better? That's better. Oh, yeah, that was hilarious. Much whatever, better. whatever you just I'm did, do don't again. ever do it again. <laughs> So I'm, I guess that's what, uh, I'm glad you didn't say there in the show, otherwise I would have blown everybody's uh, eardrums off. <laughs> that, that, and that's why I didn't mention it, because I thought something that's bad was going to happen. Michael a pro. Yeah. <laughs>